So, Father God, we bless you today. We do believe that. We sing that with all of our heart, mind, soul, body, and strength, that you reign, that there is nothing that has happened that surprises you. And yet you are not some stoic, unfeeling God. Though you are not surprised, you still grieve. And so, Lord God, teach us how to lament. How to sit in the hurt of other people. Teach us that. Teach us to be a people, Lord God, who looks to you first and not government. Who believe boldly that we have the answers in the church house, not ultimately the White House. And help us, Father, to put shoe leather on the very gospel we proclaim. It is in your name we pray these things. Amen and amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. If you have your Bibles, I want you to meet me in Ephesians chapter 2. I am... We just moved from the Upper West Side of New York City. If you know anything about uh, New York City's geography, you know uh, the Upper West Side is just below uh, Harlem. And if you know anything about Harlem, you know, among other things, that uh, there's a street there named after Malcolm X. And it's named after Malcolm X because, of course, Malcolm X spent a considerable amount of time there uh, building some of the Muslim temples. And you do understand, uh, chocolate people especially get this, that the primary place in which Malcolm X recruited for the nation of Islam was the church. And he would stand out in front of black churches uh, and he would wait uh, right until church ends. And this is back in the 1950s, early 60s. And all these black folks are coming out of church and Malcolm X would rush up to them and he would ask a very poignant question. What difference has your Jesus made in the community? That's a poignant question because too many churches preach a Jesus who ain't portable. We must preach a Jesus who we can take with us as the answer to what ails us. And so this morning, I want to wade in to the race conversation. And the reason why I want to wade in is because the Bible wades in. Ephesians chapter 2 Paul deals with the issue of race, or what some might call ethnicity. And he deals with it beginning in verse 11. This is just one of many places. And beginning in verse 11, Paul says these words. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. Let me stop you right there. So oftentimes Paul uses the word Gentiles. He uses it in two ways. Sometimes he uses the word Gentiles to talk about people who don't know Jesus. So sometimes he uses the word Gentiles in a spiritual sense to talk about people who have not been saved as of yet. 
That's not how he uses it here. We know he's not using it that way here because he says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. So now he's talking about ethnically non-Jewish people. By what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. So now what Paul is saying is astounding. He's saying that the gospel is not just for a people group. That no one people group has a monopoly on the gospel. It's for everybody. For he himself is our peace who has made us, verse 14, both one and has broken down in his, in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one, one, one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So what Paul is doing here is he's dismantling this Jewish mindset that, that pretty much says when it comes to God, there's a varsity team and a junior varsity. There's an A team and a B. No, no, no. No VIP rooms. You both have access. In whom the whole structure being joined together, verse 21, grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Several years ago, there was a submarine that had been battered badly in combat. So badly that it was rendered inoperable and it was feared that all of the sailors who were on this submarine, who were stuck, this inoperable submarine, it was feared they were going to run out of oxygen and ultimately die. The appropriate military powers heard about this and they commissioned a group of divers to see what they could do. And as these divers circled the submarine, they heard a faint tapping from a sailor inside the submarine. As these divers heard that tapping, they listened closely and discovered that this tapping was in Morse code. And they deciphered the message. The message that they heard from this tapping by the sailor inside this inoperable submarine was simply, is anybody out there help? Is anybody out there? Ever been in a place in your own personal walk with Jesus in which it just felt like you asked the question, is anybody out there? 
I mean, in your head, you, you knew it, but, but ever walk through your own valley of the shadow of death and life has come at you as the commercial says so fast and you felt so squeezed that there was this exhale in your spirit as if you are looking up into the heavens and wondering, God, where are you? And if indeed you are there, do something. Well, if you haven't been there yet, you will be. Is anybody out there? There, there are times, here it is, at your neighborhood where we ask this question individually, but there are also times in which we ask this question corporately and collectively. When we look at our society, not just a person, but our society walking through the valley of its own shadow of death, and there is something in you that says, God, where are you? And if you are who you say you are, do something. There have been times, if I can just put all my cards on the table, that if I were God for a day, I'd do it different. Now, y'all, y'all, y'all looking at me like y'all wouldn't do that. There are sometimes I don't get God for all the hours I've spent in seminary. A couple weeks ago, I was on vacation with my family and we turned on CNN. You can go ahead and put that image up. And one day I turned on the television and like you saw it. Black man in this light blue shirt, Alton Sterling, gets shot, killed by some cops. I am not impugning the cops. But all of us in this room have cultural lenses. We all have a filter by in which we see things. I am redeemed, but I am also a redeemed black man. And as a black man, I just kind of see things differently. I'm maturing enough to know that my, from my perch, it ain't always white. But I see things and do things differently. I don't eat cheese sandwiches or mayonnaise sandwiches. I don't go hiking. We've talked. To, I'm just genetically predisposed not to do certain things. You got them proclivities yourself. So I see Alton Sterling. For me as a black man, it's a part of a longer narrative. This is I talking, not the Lord. And something in me goes, is anybody out there? Get finished watching that play with my nieces and nephews, hang out, get up the next morning, turn my cell phone on, got a text message from one of my, my boys saying, did you, did you see this? Turn on the news and a woman named Diamond is live streaming the final fleeting moments of her boyfriend. Philando Castillo. 
Is anybody out there? Not done. Next day or two later, a deranged, to use Obama's words, despicable, immoral person, black man, snuffs out the lives of several Dallas police officers and wounds many others, all out of anger and frustration. He does this horrible thing. We see the memorial service, five empty chairs. Is anybody out there? So this morning, I want to wade into it. Um, this afternoon, I, I've done this enough. I, I, we, we, we preach this stuff all the time. When I planted a multi-ethnic church in Memphis, Tennessee, I was crazy enough to say, God sent me to the toughest place to do a multi-ethnic church. And it was Memphis, Tennessee. I mean, they've got a park right in the middle of town to the founder of the KKK. They've got a park there called Confederate park. And we preach this stuff, 26 people in the living room. God grew it to several thousand people, multi-ethnic thing happening. And, and here's the deal. Here's what you realize. When, when you talk about race, and you preach on it in church, there's two conflicting feelings you have as a pastor. One feeling is, is knowing at the end of this sermon, I will realize that this is one of the most important things I can talk about. How the gospel informs our thinking and our feet. But on the other hand, I'm conflicted because what we're going to do for the next 30 minutes is we're going to mash on a wound. And what complicates it is, it is easy to talk about it in a homogenous setting. If this were an all black church, it'd be easy. Cater to your constituency, tell them what they want to hear, uh, kind of rail against them. This is an all-white thing. Same thing. But it's tough in a multi-ethnic church because we see it so differently. I'm a big believer in the multi-ethnic church because heaven's going to be multi-ethnic. But the multi-ethnic church is a beautiful mess. I mean, just look around at all these beautiful faces. I mean, this just ain't multi-ethnic. It's California multi-ethnic. Y'all got stuff out here I ain't never heard of before. I love it. We got Pacific Islanders. We got not just Asians, but Koreans and Japanese and Chinese and black folk. And we got it all. And it's beautiful, but it's messy. Because if you just take a panoramic picture, what you see in all of the faces are varied perspectives. And so by the time this sermon is over, 
Some of y'all going to feel I push too hard. And others are you going to feel like I didn't push hard enough. And yet my goal is not to be balanced. It's to be biblical. So fasten your seatbelts. If you don't leave here with a little bit of dissonance, a little bit of, don't rush to your computers to send me an email either. Pray, sit on it. And I'm serious. I'll talk about this in just a few moments. Don't send me an email pushing back on me if you don't hang out with folk and do life with folk who look like me. We see it differently. Uh, my, my good friend David Kinneman hangs, heads up a group called the Barna Group. All David K- Kinneman is just a stats guy. Let me give you some stats because I want us to begin with this. We see it differently. We see it differently. Say that with me. We see it differently. Next image. Latest stats. The question is, you know, differences between white and non-white born-again Christians. Perspective on on believing the police unfairly target people of color. I just just want you to sit with this. Latest stats. 24% of white born-again adults believe that police unfairly target people of color. Let let me flip it around. 76% don't. You with me on that? These are just stats. 76% of white born-again adults do not believe police unfairly target people of color. 82% of non-white born-again adults believe police unfairly target people of color. Hear me, this message is not about whether or not police unfairly target people of color. What I'm just trying to get you to see right now is we see it differently. Say it with me again. We see it differently. If I were to pass the microphone around... And would say, let's have a testimony service. And I just want to solicit testimonies. I won't say testimonies. Stories of people who have gotten a DWB. If you don't know what that means, don't raise your hand. If you have gotten a DWB, just raise your hand. Yeah. If you white raising your hand, you... DW means driving while black. We are not here to say whether or not that was actually the case. We are here to say that's how we saw it. We see it differently. Next step. What percentage of people, born-again people, live in fear of police brutality? 5% of white born-again adults, latest stats, 
live in fear of police brutality. Which means 95% don't. 34% non-white born-again adults live in fear. We see it differently. How many people have had a conversation with your child about what specifically to do when the cops pull them over? Show of hands. From the eye test, it's mostly people of color. Hear me. This is not about right or wrong. It's about perspective. Flip a switch. We see it differently. So I want to wade into this. Why, pastor, are we talking about this? I don't know, pastor. This sounds like the social gospel. Well, let's look at that. Paul, when he sits down and writes the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the gospel. He says the gospel of first importance is the fact that Jesus Christ died in your place and for your sins. That we were sinful human beings headed down a one-way street destined for hell. God stepped in, John 3, 16. God so loved you and I, he so loved the world that he gave his only son to die for us. So that God was concerned in us being reconciled to him, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And he has called us into the ministry of reconciliation, which is spiritual. It's about connecting sinful man with a holy God. Vertical. But that ain't all the gospel is. Now having been connected, sinful man with a holy God... The primary way the scriptures say that I know that I have been vertically reconciled to God through Christ is how I now horizontally live out that reconciliation with people who specifically don't look like, act like, think like, or vote like me. John says it is absolutely incongruent with the gospel. Let me quote John. John says, how can you claim to love God whom you don't see, but hate your brother who you do see? This not only deals with white folks. I mean, being an equal opportunity abuser, it also deals with people of color who are harboring deep-seated issues of suspicion, bitterness, and hate towards our white brother. To be a racist Christian or to be an indifferent Christian, to quote Abraham Joshua Hichel, who marched with Dr. King, the only thing worse than hatred is indifference. To be any of those things is to be out of step with the gospel. Galatians 2. Paul says, I had to confront Peter because prior to the Jews getting to town, he used to eat with the Gentiles. He used to enjoy chitlins and ribs with hot sauce and all that wonderful stuff. But once the Jews showed up, he withdrew. And Paul calls his actions of this Jewish man withdrawing from his Gentile brothers and sisters. He says, I had to tell him that was out of step with the gospel. 
So for black people to be suspicious, to write off white people, for white people to be indifferent or suspicious, both of those we've got to call a foul. So this is what Paul deals with in Ephesians chapter 2. When Paul comes to Ephesus, he comes with the gospel. He's concerned with it. He understands that what Jesus taught was true. Jesus says, in answer to the question, what is the great commandment? The great commandment, Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength, vertical. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor, your neighbor, your neighbor as yourself. The question now becomes, who is your neighbor? He's asked that question in Luke chapter 10. He gives this story, the story of the good Samaritan, of a Jewish man who gets beaten up really bad. His Jewish brothers pass him. It is a Samaritan man from an ethnically different group who's stops and ministers to his needs. My friend Albert Tate has it right. If I were to preach that passage, I would simply give it the title, hashtag Samaritan Lives Matter. And so in answer to the question, who's your neighbor? He tells this story of a Samaritan, ethnically different people group from a people group Jews didn't like going across the divide, helping to minister to a person who's ethnically different. He is answering that question by saying, who's your neighbor? Your neighbor is everyone you see, even people who don't see it like you see it. Black Lives Matter is your neighbor. The KKK is your neighbor. Alton Sterling is your neighbor. Uh, Philando Castile is your neighbor. The Dallas PD is your neighbor. It is everyone you see. So now Paul comes to Ephesus. He preaches the gospel to Jews. Some Jews come to faith in Jesus Christ. He now preaches the gospel to some Gentiles in the hall of Tyrannus. These Gentiles come to Christ. What does he do? These two people groups who can't stand each other. The easy thing would be to start two separate churches. That's easy. Paul says, no, I'm starting one church. I'm not segregating you. There will not be an East Palo Alto section of heaven. There is no gentrification in heaven. No zip codes. It's one heaven, one people group. He says, I'm I'm going to start one church... And I'm putting these two diametrically opposed people groups who cannot stand each other in one church. And I want this one church to be the theater, the stage that announces to the world, this is how we deal practically with the gospel. I want you to flesh out horizontally what God has already done vertically. And I want you to live in love with one another in such a way that people out there are attracted to what's going on in here because they see people love each other. But oh, how the church in America is so far away from this. I can take you all the way back to 1787. A young black man has the audacity to pray in Philadelphia. Brother Arshel at an all-white Methodist church. He has the audacity to pray in the whites-only section of the church. Whites-only section of the church. The whites get incensed. They pick him up off his knees while he's praying. They throw him outside, kick him out. All the black people get incensed. They leave that church. They buy a blacksmith shop, and they decide to start their own church. 
and they decided to name it the African Methodist Episcopal Church. If you do your church history, you understand that that is the beginning of a horrible chapter in our country. And just about every historic black denomination is started because our white brothers and sisters would not let us in. Mass segregation happens. I can take a hundred years later, actually about 75 years later, group of Baptists split off from the general Baptists over the issue of slavery and what would become the civil war. They started a thing called the Southern Baptists. I've got many Southern Baptist friends. They've since repented of that, but the segregation continues. I could talk to you about the 1950s and 1960s when Martin Luther King Jr. looked out on the ecclesiological landscape and uttered these words, these melancholy words where he said, the 11 o'clock hour is the most segregated hour of the week on Sundays. What's the big deal, pastor? We got a black president. Did you know that the latest Lifeway research statistics say only 10%, only 10%, only 10% of all churches that preach Jesus Christ today are truly multi-ethnic. There are two last bastions of institutionalized segregation in our country. It is the Greek system on college campuses. Ain't met too many white AKAs talking ski-wee. And it is the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so what do Christians do? We outsource our racial division to government. We look to presidents and congressmen and senators to do for us what Jesus has already done. In our text, Paul says that when Christ died, the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. Meaning we can now rush in together. And worship with people who don't see it like we do. But what do most churches do on Sunday mornings? Voluntary segregation, which I think is worse than legislated. So here's my dream. (laughs) Reason why I came here to Abundant Life. I just felt this urge. God has strategically positioned us. This multi-ethnic church. And man, we got these great facilities. This ain't it. We ain't doing another building fund. I ain't doing no car washes, no chitlin dinners, none of that. This is it. So we're going to fill this thing up maybe a couple of times. And my goal and my dream is, is that this is a multi-ethnic church that continues to grow. And people out here are coming in here and they can't believe the race is loving each other and seeking each other and serving each other. And I'm praying for revival. I want to see Indians come to Christ and Asians and black folk and white folk. And then I want to plant churches, multi-ethnic gospel teaching and preaching churches where it is said, look at how they love. But how does this happen? It's hard work. I want to give you three things that you have to do. You have to do to make this thing happen. This ain't three things that Wolf Blitzer is talking about, that Megan Kelly is talking about, that Sean Hannity is talking about. These are three things. First of all, you 
must be committed to uncomfortable relationships. How does the church at Ephesus get started? Here's Paul, a Jewish man, walks into a synagogue, preaches Christ. That's easy so far. He's a Jew, hanging out with Jews. But how does it also get started, this multi-ethnic church, after leaving the synagogue? He goes to the other side of town, preaches Christ in a place he's not comfortable, the Hall of Tyrannus, which is this Gentile place. That's what Paul does. He crosses over to the other side of the tracks, and he preaches Christ to people who are ethnically different than him. If you understand anything about Paul, you read the letters that he writes. Just read the last chapter and the shout outs that he gives. Those names are very eclectic names. Some are Jewish names. Many of them are Gentile names telling us he actually had Gentile friends. You know why he goes to jail for the last time? Because he was accused falsely of taking his dear friend Trophimus, a Gentile. This Jewish man takes his Gentile friend into the temple. He's falsely accused of taking him into the forbidden parts of the temple. But what you cannot escape is Paul hung out and did life. Not in a homogenous trial uh, tribe, but in a tribe that saw it and did it and viewed life differently than him. What all of this racial mess has taught me in the aftermath about it, I was just doing a radio uh, interview. What all this racial mess just, just teaches me is the way we react. We don't know each other. So what happens is you hang out with people who only see it the way you see it. Your partial perspective gets entrenched and devolves into a racist perspective because you need yin and yang. Read Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus, written by scholar Reggie Williams, the great Dietrich Bonhoeffer who is immortalized there at Westminster Abbey, this uh, white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed German guy in the 1930s comes to Harlem in his 20s, PhD. He starts visiting churches, teaching at Union. He says, all the white churches I visited, they just didn't do it for me. So he joins a black church, Abyssinian, still around. White German man joins a black church, teaches Sunday school, listens to the black preaching, follows black leadership, befriends a guy, black man named Albert Fisher, who introduces him to Negro spirituals, who takes him on a trip to the Jim Crow South. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, I don't go back to Germany to stand for the Jews and against Hitler if I don't first stop at the black church, because at the black church, a whole perspective was opened up for me. Listen, if you're a Fox News person, you need people in your life who watch MSNBC. If you're a CNN person, you need either side. I'm not calling the Clinton News Network balanced, but you get what I'm saying. You need people who see it differently. Who push back on you. Secondly, you don't just need uncomfortable relationships. You also need unconditional love. John 13, 34 to 35 says this. Put it up on the screen. Jesus in the upper room discourse says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Love one another. Love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people know that, you're not, that you are my disciples. Not by what you know. Not by the books that you've read. Not by what church you attend. 
But if you have love for one another, you know who he's saying that to his disciples? You know who some of his disciples were? You had a tax collector named Levi. Name was changed to Matthew. A Jewish tax collector was seen. That was the social equivalent of an Uncle Tom. And then he had another disciple, a guy by the name of Simon the Zealot. Zealots were, were today's version of ISIS. They were ready. They were strapped. Ready to kill folk. You got ISIS and an Uncle Tom. Same group. And what does Jesus say? Love, 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 love one another. Work it out. Let's get real practical. Love is not colorblind. Hear me. Love is not colorblind. The Bible says that you and I are fearfully and wonderfully made. Not just our spirits, but all of us. So that when God saved me, he does not call me to get rid of my gender, my class, nor my ethnicity. But someone said, what about Galatians chapter 3? We're in Christ. There's either slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. That's as it relates to value. We're different. I married a woman. We're different. And our differences are not to be ignored, just subjugated to the cross. In other words, God does not call me to disregard my blackness. He just wants me to subjugate my blackness to my Jesusness. You with me on that? So that Jesus is first, not me being black, but I don't forget about the fact that I'm black. So that. If you really want to love me, all of me, you must first seek to understand me, all of me. It's a principle. Love increasing increases where understanding increases. That's why nobody in this room can love my wife the way that I love her. Because no one in this room understands my wife the way that I understand her. I know her story. That's why nobody in this room can love someone else the way God loves you because God understands you. Now let's get real practical. Put this next image on the screen. I told you, I've shared this with you before. Just count on two or three times a year. I'm coming to you with this. In fact, my wife and I, we're going to teach a class on marriage here in a month or two. It's just a six-week tune-up. We're going to be coming to this all the time. These are the five levels of communication from the most superficial to the deepest. The most superficial cliche. Good morning, good morning. How are you? Fine. You haven't said anything. Just cliche, non-sharing. Next two levels, next two levels are where most guys hang out. Facts. What'd you do today? What time did you get to work? Who won the game? How many points did Kobe have? They scored 60, but they weren't playing in defense. It was Utah or something like that. But anyways, opinions, level three. Sharing what you think. Levels four and level five are the deepest levels of relational intimacy. 
If you don't get there, your relationship is not deep. Level four, it's emotive, sharing how I feel. Level five, it's transparency, it's sharing who you are. Now, here's the problem. When my wife comes, with me, uh, comes to me with an issue in marriage, and we, a, a lot of our fights happen, and I'm hopefully growing in this, sweetheart. Say amen. Help me out. Oftentimes, the problem with our marriage, oftentimes, she'll come to me level four and I'll hang out in lawyer land level two. She comes with me or something and I'll just pepper her with facts. Well, now we've got, we've really got a problem. This is also the problem in race relations. So when I tell you as a black man, hey man, this stuff the cops are doing, to Alton Sterling is bothering me. And what happened with Philando Castile? And then you say as a white person, then come back to it with me with statistics on black on black crime. You may be right, but when I'm hurting, I don't need stats. I need you to just sit with me for a while. Now, I'm not saying there's not a place for stats. But before we get back to level two, come sit with me for a moment in level four. Before you send the email about black on black crime, have a cup of coffee with me. Before you give me a litany of history and all this other stuff, cry with me first. My friend Sung Chan Ra wrote a book called Prophetic Lament. He says the problem with the American church, if you were to look at the worship songs that we sing, only 5% of the worship songs that we sing are lament songs. The other 95% are triumphalistic. He will conquer. He will reign victorious. He will get the victory. Well, there are some times in which I don't feel victorious. I need you to hurt with me. Just like I would never say to that woman who was raped on Stanford's campus, you shouldn't have been at the party. The ethnic equivalent of that is looking at another person of color shot by cops. And saying, well, they had a criminal record. You can't love me unless you first know my narrative. So how do we love one another? We don't love one another by having arguments on a person's Facebook page. Don't do that. For many reasons. One, I've never seen an argument on a Facebook page that ended, you know, you're right. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of time. When you see me doing something I don't like, don't email someone else tattletailing on me. Call me. Hear me. 
with me. I may be wrong. And that's the conclusion we land on. But before you bludgeon me with the truth, give me some tissue. Are you getting this today? Finally, let's go home on this. How do we live this stuff out? Uncomfortable relationships. If people are primarily coming to church to this day out of relationships, then sanctuaries reflect dinner tables. How diverse is your dinner table? Universal, excuse me, unconditional love. Thirdly, finally, a universal gospel. Let me remind us of some things. How did we get saved? Because God loves everybody. John 3, 16, for God so loved not just the black man, the Hispanic man, the Asian man. the He loved the world. And he gave his son for the world. Revelation chapter 5 tells us that God through Christ actually racially profiled. He said he purchased people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. In heaven, there will be no such thing as a missing people group. Now, let me ask you a question. If God loves everybody, and if God saves people out of every people group, which means he's in relationship with an eclectic group of people. And if we're called to look like God, who's in relationship with an eclectic group of people, how much like God do you look? How much like God do you look? In 1954, a 12-year-old inner-city youth was frustrated. He had his bicycle stolen. In tears, this 12-year-old inner-city African-American youth goes to this white police officer. Who's, and he's crying to this police officer, sir, I had my bicycle stolen. And when I see the person who stole my bike, I'm going to beat this person up. Well, this white police officer says to him, well, if you're going to beat him up, do you know how to box? He says, no, I don't know how to box. He says, let me show you how to fight. And what was birthed out of that exchange between a black 12-year-old inner-city youth and a white cop was something that changed. Change the world, Muhammad Ali. The, the message of this story is when we can get cops and inner city youth talking, greatness can happen. Now, just what imagine if Christ is put in the center of it. The church is leading the way. The church is no longer putting its hope on government, but saying, we're going to take this seriously. And, and I'm going to actually lead out in these things. I'm going to try to get understanding and I'm going to sit with people who see it differently. And I'm going to keep pushing it back to the cross. And when they say something to me, I don't like, I'm not going to pick up my ball and go home, but I want to forgive and I'm going to love and I'm going to keep asking questions. I'm going to cry with now we've got something. 
Now we've got something. Father, in the name of Jesus, I bless you in this place. These are tough issues to wade into. Hard things. But God, this is at the center of your gospel. You don't save us just for us to hang out with people we like. But you save us, Lord God, and you have left us here to occupy until you come. That we would be messengers and vessels of hope. Our forefathers got this. Yeah, they marched in the streets for justice, but they met in the church first. They sang the songs of Zion. They prayed to you. They believed in you. And I believe you've given us another moment in history. And you're giving the church another chance to stand up and be the church. May we be counted among the numbers. May we not miss this window. God, my perspective is narrow, I I admit. I don't see it all the way perfect. So, Lord God, you know I, I need to travel with people who see it differently. And I pray for humility in my own heart, Lord God, to be able to admit where I get it wrong. We need each other. None of us has the perfect perspective. That's why we keep coming to each other and we keep coming to the cross and coming to the cross and coming to the cross and coming to the cross, cross, Lord God. By this will all men know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. Even other people who see it differently, even other people who look differently, even other people who come from different zip codes, Lord God. Help us, Lord Jesus. We confess our sins, Lord God. We pray for the filling of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.